0: Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hi, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I'm Ben Bullen. And we're back with our part two of uh, the most obscure cars list that we're covering. The
2: wait is over, and thank you in advance to everybody who uh, has sent us some emails regarding this. Um, thanks for hanging in. Thanks for hanging in. i uh, going to go ahead and tell you that not everything you guys said made the list here. We're, uh, we've got our story. We're sticking to it. But oh, we're going to revisit some stuff too. Yeah,
1: we're going to still, we're going to continue following the uh, the original article that we uh, we started out with here, the Jalopnik article from Matt agree And, um, you know, these were written in by Jalopnik listeners who mm-hmm. said, you know, I know 10 of these vehicles. And then I don't know if you listened to the first one or not, but we've added quite a bit of, uh, information to what was, uh, what was reported in the article here. So yeah, some you background. Know, you can follow along and see photos and, and get some of the, the basic stuff, but, uh, we went a little bit deeper on this just to, uh, add our own little flavor to it.
2: Yeah, and uh, I've got some strong contenders for most obscure car because I'm not sure if I agree with the order of these.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, we could all probably juggle these around a little bit and yeah. say, like, no way, that one should be number one for sure. But um in true top ten form, we've been going from ten through one, mm-hmm. and we wrapped up with number six last time which was that uh, that crazy... P-1900, the yeah. Volvo P-1900. Yeah, the Volvo P-1900 that really never was, I guess, <laughs> Uh, thankfully. And uh, we're going to pick it up with number five on the list, which is a... um Man, I wish... I kind of wish this one was built.
2: I mean, for real. Yeah, it's a much stronger entry. We're talking about the 1963 ATS 2500 GT, the re-leader coupe.
1: That's a long name, Ben.
2: Oh yeah, you, uh, it's friends call it the ATS 2500
1: TT. Oh, that's what we'll call it then <laughs> because, uh, you know, this, this ATS, uh, coupe or this ATS vehicle it was actually, ATS is the name of the company. Right. That built this thing. And, and this has its own unique story as well. Now let's tell you just a little bit about the vehicle before we tell, we tell you really what ATS is. Um, the vehicle itself is a 220 horsepower mid-engine 2.5 liter V8. Uh, that was able to hit 150 miles per hour. Now that's, uh, that's pretty significant. It sounds like a really cool car, right? Right. I mean, looking at the photo, it looks like a, a really, really nice coupe design. It's a really, really, uh, attractive design, I guess. Yeah. And this ATS company that built it, that's where the real story comes in. Cause they only built, they only built less than 10 cars. And, uh-huh. uh, only one of these cars actually had a full interior in it. Right.
2: Uh, we're talking about, uh, oof, here we go. Uh, forgive me, Italians. Automobili, turismo e sport in Bologna. Very nice, Ben. Really? Well, that's kind well, of you.
1: And, and I think that the, <laughs> and I think that the only, the only maybe like really significant thing that we need to tell you about this one before we move on to our next one. I yeah. mean, just take a look at the photo. And, uh, if you, if you ever see one of these, consider yourself lucky because, you know, the, again, less than 10 built, only one with a full interior. But where this thing comes from is so fascinating to me. It comes from an important time in history. It comes from like a significant event that happened at Ferrari. And Mm -hmm. it was after something that was called the Great Walkout in 1961. And if you don't know about the Great Walkout at Ferrari. We should just
2: do an episode on it, too. We
1: probably should. I mean, these things kind of, they just kind of lead to other episodes Mm -hmm. for us. So, again, look up the Great Walkout in 1961 about Ferrari. It's almost the end of Ferrari as a car company.
2: Yeah. And uh, the so the folks at ATS who um, well we could say just a little bit without being too spoilery, uh, the folks at ATS, one of their missions later in, in their company's lifespan was just to beat Ferrari. It was so. It was so personal. We have to go on with that.
1: And I mean, I mean, look at that car. That car is a a Ferrari fighter, I guess, if you want to call it that. Really. Yeah, it's a a
2: Ferrari killer. I
1: mean, look. Think about 1963 and that vehicle. That's a. That's a a well advanced design that comes from people that clearly were on the inside at Ferrari. I mean, it's definitely a solid vehicle. I wish. I really wish that one was produced. You know, there were at least you know, let's say 20, 25 of these things instead of less than 10, especially yeah. only one with a real working interior. Right. Um, oh, man. It's too bad. We're, I, I think the chances of really actually seeing one of these are very, very slim.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, uh, one thing, though, I, I'm sorry to keep adding stuff here. Um, They did have a competition version that came out that had slightly higher horsepower. It's 245 horsepower. Not bad. Yeah, but it didn't do well. Hmm. Okay. Anyway, uh, let's talk about something that uh did do pretty well, or that has a lot of fans.
1: Yeah, a huge amount of fans. I yeah. Mean, a, uh, a giant underground following. I don't even know if you could say underground, like cult following, maybe? A cult
2: following, a cult classic, the 1984-1987 yeah. Honda CRX
1: Roadster. And, yeah, you know, one of the reasons that this, this particular vehicle, the Roadster, has such a, a small group of people that were interested in it even um, is because that it takes a a vehicle that was already small and a two-seater and like i said i couldn't even keep it when i had a family really right yeah um it it makes it even less useful in some way because (laughs) because now there's a convertible top they have to deal with and it doesn't have the hard top because i'll be honest my hatchback i could put anything inside that honda crx hatchback i i fit Ridiculous things inside there. Bike, bicycles standing up inside yeah, there.
2: Yeah. And those hatchbacks were all over the place in the eighties.
1: They were. And they, you know what? You can still spot them around. People yeah. still love oh, them. There's yeah. still, you know, kind of this cult following of them. But the roadsters, now this is an unusual story because, um, in the, I think it was the, well, 1984 to 1987, a group called, or not a group, but a, a company called, um, I want to say it. Uh, Strahman? Strahman, yeah, I want to say it. Or Strayman. Strayman, Straman. Strahman. S-T-R-A-M-A-N. Yeah, that's uh, probably the best. Strayman Coachworks. Yeah. And uh, this is the company that was like the original customizer that decided that they were going to create, um well, convertible or ragtop CRX vehicles. Yep. And that's exactly what they did. Now, I think there's a – I'm going to tell you, Ben. I think there's a, a typo in the article that we're reading here. Oh, in the yeah. the article. Because I read somewhere else that they created – a total of 310 of these things. And uh, this article says 130. But we're pretty... I saw the same thing. I'm pretty sure it's 300. I think it's 310 because yeah. I saw it other places. I went to several different articles to look up the information to see if I saw the 130 again or the 310. Yeah. And I, I found 310 in several different places. If you want to go read about the uh, the CRX Roadsters, which I guess are still around. You can still find people driving these things. You can go to uh, the Honda Tuning Magazine article that is called 1985 Strayman Convertible Honda CRX, or I think the, the, the slang for it is just ragtop Rex, is what they
2: call it. Yeah, yeah. You can also check out some uh, some interesting discussions about it on various forums.
1: Yeah, because other people did this. You know, other people, you know, there were, there were one-offs that, you know, people would do it on their own, you know, in their own garage or whatever, and that's fine. But then there were other companies that also did this, but they followed Strayman in that, you know, Strayman was the first one to do it, or Strawman or whoever you want to say Yeah, it. kind of a harbinger. Yeah, they were the very first ones to do it, and they only built 310 um but I guess they paid, man, you could get one through the Honda dealership for something like $5,000 more than you would pay for your straight Honda CRX. Uh, right. Um, well, I guess it was a coupe or a hatchback, really. Yeah. Hatchback. And, uh, $5,000 at the time. I mean, think about 5000 in 1984. I mean, I don't have the conversion on hand here, but yeah. that was a significant amount of money. I think that's about all I paid for mine total. 5000 <laughs> when I bought it used. You know, it, mine was in 1990. It, I bought it a couple of years used and I think it was around five or six or something uh-huh. like that, you know, total. So wow. I can't imagine adding this on 10 years prior to that. It would have been a significant amount of money.
2: Yeah. And which kind of explains why there are so few. Uh, we've got to go to something that I'm excited about this. I think you might be excited about this too. A uh, little bit of preface. Scott, I want to spend a little bit more than average time on this car because we have so many listeners in Canada, and uh, you've written to us and said, hey, guys, enjoy the show, more Canadian cars. Well, we're starting to dip our toe in it with this one, number three, the 1971
1: Matic GT. You're making me want to sing the Canadian National Anthem, Ben. Oh, hey, take a shot. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm just – I'll clap in the background. Oh, Canada. No, I'm not going to do it. Not yeah. the whole thing, anyways. That's just the beginning. Okay. Well, I I, can... I'm not going to – I hear it at every hockey game I go to, so I I, yeah. I I pretty much know the whole thing.
2: Oh, yeah. People might not know. Scott Benjamin, you're a hockey fan. Are you a hockey fan? I – um you know, my family has a lot of hockey. I saw some growing up, but I haven't gone out to games recently.
1: Hmm. All right. Maybe we'll have to change that. I mean,
2: that. you guys – if you know, we're based in Atlanta, and uh, Atlanta has terrible luck with hockey teams. <laughs> yeah,
1: we're not uh, we're not big into hockey, but we do have a uh, I don't know what you call it a farm league, something like that. Yeah, it's not far outside of town here, the Gwinnett Gladiators, and uh-huh. uh, I go to their games often. That's cool. Yeah, they're they're excellent play. It's almost like watching the pros. I didn't know that. We should go sometime. Yeah, yeah definitely should. But. uh Anyways, back to the vehicles, right? So, um, the 1971 Manic GT and the name Manic, now it sounds like a cool name for a car anyways. Right. A Manic yeah. vehicle, right? But it's, <laughs> it's named for Quebec's, um, Manicougan, River. Is that right? Oh, man. I think it's Manicougan. Yeah. Uh, and hydroelectric Project. So it's named for a river in Quebec. hmm And, uh, it was built by a guy that worked for Renault.
2: Ah, uh, yes. Uh, and he's a Montrealer. Now, we, You've got his name down here, right? We yeah. talked about this. Yeah. Now,
1: this name, this is a funny name. <laughs> if you read it, in, like here in the United States, uh, if you read it, you would say Jacques About. But uh-huh. uh, I'm guessing, I'm going to guess that because this is a Canadian name, and you know sure. how they say about? Uh-huh. They say it a boot. So Jacques About. I think it's a Jacques About is this guy's name. So uh, Jacques About Jacques is about. The, uh, the guy that worked in the late 1960s for uh, Renault. And I guess he was... Uh, what was his position there, Ben? Oh, uh, he was
2: in their PR department, weirdly
1: enough. PR department. Now, see, I would have guessed this guy to be an engineer or, uh, you know, some type of machinist or something like that because yeah, of what we a, find out later. Right. But I guess what, what got him really fired up about this whole thing was that Renault wanted him to create this, uh, this feasibility study of bringing the Renault Alpine vehicle to Canada. And if you know about the Renault Alpine vehicle, that was a, a sports car, a competition car yep. that was being sold in Europe at the time. And the Alpine was a uh, you know a rally contender. It was a uh, it won several rallies. I mean, it was a, right. uh, a significant contender in all these events.
2: Popular in Europe at the time, and also uh, apparently the study that he conducted showed that Canadian consumers. Would also l- very much love an Alpine.
1: Yeah, so he's got this result of the study that says, yeah, this is a great vehicle. We'd yeah. love to bring it here. However, Renault decides, I don't think we're going to do it. You know, we had to do the study, but um, and we know it would be popular vehicle here in Canada. But I don't think we're going to bring the Alpine to Canada at this time. Yeah. Let's just put it on the back burner for now. And he's thinking well, the, the time is right. Let's strike while the iron's hot, right?
2: Yeah, he really believed in this study, you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Believed in it so much that he said, okay, you don't want to import the alpine, uh, I'm going to go
1: make my own company and make my own car. Yeah. Based on a Renault. Based on a Renault. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Of course, because that's what he knew. You know, he knew that, you know, Renault had the right (laughs) platform to use, right? Yeah. So he builds this car based on a uh, Renault platform. He has a rear engine, rear wheel drive vehicle. uh, It's a 1.3 liter overhead valves, four-cylinder engine. And I think there were four and five-speed manual transmission options available, and – he had three separate tuning variants that were available as well. You could get one with 65 horsepower, one with 80 horsepower, and then I guess the top dog was the one with 105 horsepower. And, oh, it's, a, yeah. and it's a small car. Right. Um, so it's probably very powerful. Of course, the the, uh, the rear engine, you know, that setup is, is uh, you know, really good for, for weight distribution. People love driving those things. You know, it's a lot of fun to do that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, based on a, a working Renault at the time, so, you know, he knew that this this setup would really work. Well, just a few years later, he had to, he had to decide, you know, once he gets the prototype going and, right. and gets all of his uh, ducks in a row for, you know, how we're going to build this vehicle and you know, what it's going to, you know, be completely made up of, you know, all the parts and suppliers and everything, the whole line. Um, I'm going to need to raise some money in order to get this thing going. So he raises $1.5 million in capital. And again, this is the, the late 1960s. I yeah. It turns out that he is. Phenomenally good at raising money. Yeah, I guess, and he has uh, the backing of the snowmobile manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Is it Bombardier? Is that how you say that? We always struggle with this one. Yeah, we are not French. Bombardier. I always say Bombardier, but Bombardier. It's bombardier. I think bombardier. is the, uh, the the snowmobile maker. And then uh, some supermarkets got behind him. Yes, the one supermarket, Steinberg Supermarkets, they got behind him as well. And um, I think the Canadian government and Quebec yep. even, you know, said hey, why don't you build it? Because this is something that's going to bring jobs into our our uh, community.
2: Yeah, it was really set to be, as they mentioned in this article, um, by Jalopnik, the first big Canadian sports car. Uh, however, and I, I know some people will argue about that, but when we say big, we mean super, super enormous, uh, ubiquitous on the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, they ran into a little, uh, they ran into what ultimately sank them, which uh, was, as you mentioned before, Scott, a supply
1: chain issue. Yeah, they had trouble getting. Uh, there were no parts shipped into Canada reliably, so they were having. Um, you know, they're actually in production, and mm-hmm. this is this is really what we could we call the first Canadian built car. I yeah, mean, this uh, this vehicle is the first Canadian built car. So the Manic GT is you know has its part in history, but they couldn't get the parts into Canada reliably enough to build cars continuously. So the total number of production vehicles that were ever built of these Manic GTs were something like 160 vehicles. And um you know the number originally planned was something supposed to be something like 2000 per year so you know significantly under what they had produ- you know uh projected I guess for even one year of production is what they they ended up with 160 vehicles I mean that's that's really really small which is a shame cuz it sounds like a good car It, it really does and you know the, the rear engine design all that had it going for it it wasn't intended to be a um a, a, um I guess a sports car racer vehicle it wasn't intended to compete on the track or anything it was just right. intended to be a good road going car with good performance and good fuel economy that you could use as a daily driver exactly and i think this guy had the right idea and, it, and it's a great looking car it's a pretty cool design especially for 1971 i mean think about what was out there in 1971 look at that design yeah that that matches a lot of uh, what we find from you know the British sports cars of the day. I mean, it mm-hmm. looks exactly like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So uh, solid design. I'm just, I'm, I'm upset that this one didn't actually make it longer. I mean, all these are the same way, but then again, they wouldn't be on our list. Well, you know, also, also,
2: we could do a great story about early Canadian cars because of the other ones that I remember. I know that uh, they had some, they had some tough luck for a well, while. Do
1: you really think we could do an entire podcast on Canadian early Canadian cars?
2: Uh maybe. maybe we'd have to do Canadian cars from a certain time span
1: okay. to to the modern day or something. I hadn't really thought about it Ben, but I guess maybe we could.
2: We could. Well, listeners yeah. let us know what we should cover, but while you're thinking what we should cover, you know what? You guys go ahead and talk amongst yourselves cuz I have a question for Scott. Uh okay, Scott. While while everybody's figuring out which Canadian cars we should cover, uh just between you and me, man, I can't take the radio anymore.
0: And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice too, because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource, and paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian.
3: Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry.
0: As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all.
1: Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.
2: Scott, my friend, we have finally
1: arrived at the top two of this list. Yeah, the top two. Top two. Top two. And number two. Is one that, uh, I'll be willing to bet that not many people have ever seen one of these in person. No. A 1956 Powell Sport Wagon. And, uh, man, these are unusual, Ben. And there's a great story that goes along with them as well. I don't know if you dug into the, uh, the, the background or not. The whole but, Plymouth thing? Yeah, the Plymouth thing. I, I, dug in just a bit on this. And, um, what really makes, and just reading from the article here, it says, what makes it awesome is that this, it's a, it's a Plymouth based sedan, or based wagon rather. That was built on a 1941 Plymouth chassis, engine, interior, all that stuff. It was just a, a rebodied vehicle, I guess. Yeah. Um, and they call it a, a kind of a crossover SUV vehicle. And this is again going back to 1956. Very unusual thing. And it had these, these exterior panels that were all. Um, pretty much slab side type panels. They've got some curves in them, yeah. but they didn't do anything complex at all because the the reason given here is that curves were expensive to do. <laughs> right. And, uh, yeah. it's a very, very affordable vehicle. And I'll tell you some of the prices as we get towards the end here. But, uh, what these guys did now, these two brothers, and I think, what were their names? Um, hang on one second. I'll find it here. It's in my notes. Um, I want to say it's like Haywood or Hayward and Channing Powell were the names of these brothers and they were from Compton, California, and what they would do is they would go to junkyards and they would find old 1941 Plymouth chassis to buy. And they would buy the chassis for something like $45. Yeah. That was all they paid for them, 45 bucks. And they would have them shipped to their their California or their uh, their Compton, California factory, their plant, and they would rebody these things. And you know, they kind of refurbished the chassis and the engine a little bit. You know, sometimes they'd refurbish the engine. I guess that was one of the areas that they were a little gray on. That, you know, a lot of these junkyard cars leaked a lot of oil. They burned right, a lot of oil. Yeah. You know, they had some problems, but um, you're getting kind of a refurbished vehicle, I guess, for your money. Sure. And so these rebodied vehicles, they, they built them in wagon form, they built them in truck form. So you could get a, a pickup truck or a, a wagon. wagon. And the photo I'm looking at here is of the wagon, and it's a beautiful example. I mean, it's a, a very well restored yeah. vehicle. If it wasn't, you know, an original, I think it may have been restored. Uh, but the sheet metal bodies were of their own design. It was something they came up with. Yeah. And they used, like, they used steel for the bodies. They used fiberglass for the front ends. Um, they used chrome from old Ford pickups, I think was what they used for the, um, for the chrome on the things. Yeah. And not just pickups, but just chrome from any old Ford. And uh, sometimes they had wooden bumpers, but sometimes they had steel bumpers. It kind of depended on the vehicle and what they had what available. They find. Yeah, what they had available at the time. Yeah. And they built they built one thousand pickups, Ben, and three hundred wagons. And that sounds like a lot, but when in the grand scheme of things, you know, a thousand pickups from nineteen fifty six that's really a drop in the bucket. I mean, I, yeah, I was going to say a drop in an ocean. Yeah, they they are really they're they're rare to find it i mean if at all if you're going to be able to spot one at all and this wagon that we see here you know this is a uh, a show vehicle that they take around obviously a restored vehicle yeah but it's really really cool looking i mean and it's got some unusual features to it as well or, yeah, or one yeah. in particular that everybody likes to point out
2: oh i think i know which one you're talking about the fishing line holders yeah, right yeah these the those fishing pole holders Yeah, those
1: tube things
2: yeah they've got okay so they have these tubes in the rear of the vehicle and they are Specifically designed to hold, I don't know, like dowel rods and fishing ho- uh, fishing
1: lines. So. I think the the in- initial intent was to hold a fishing pole. I mean, yeah. that was the that was the whole goal of this thing. So you know that these are long, long tubes, but they they completely fold, not fold, but they completely slide into the body of the vehicle yeah. from the back end. Like almost picture where a tail lens would be. Um, it just unscrews with a handle. And then you pull out this tube and it looks like a, a piece of, I think it's furnace ductwork that they yeah. used to create this thing. It was an ingenious design, really. I mean, they like really fishing, smart. I guess. They must really but have
2: liked fishing. Also, I don't know why it was so hard for me to say fishing pole. I guess it just got caught on saying fishing line. No, that's
1: all right. That's, a, you know, that's slang for uh, fishing pole sometimes. So, so these things were, and you could get that design in uh, both the truck and the wagon. And I think they only included on one side, but the prototype vehicle, if you ever see the prototype of the pole of the Powell, sport wagon you'll see that it has the um the canisters those those long tube canisters on both sides right I think they dropped it on one side for for production because you know it's a little cheaper to do it that way Ugh, that
2: asymmetry bothers I, me
1: though I guess now the price oh yeah, yeah 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 the price and I read this somewhere it said that they, they were under one hundred and thirty dollars what But I, I have a hard time believing that because not, not much later by, you know, that was 1952 when they started building these and they said that, you know, 130 bucks was about the price of one of these brand new refurbished vehicles. That's crazy. But by 1956, the price had risen up to $1,095, which, I mean, let's be honest here. Raising up to 1,095, that's still not a whole lot of money. I know in 1956 it was probably significant, but, um, that's not, that's not a lot of money. Um, and that was for the sport wagon. And if you wanted to go up to what they called the deluxe sport wagon, that was $1,198. So it added about a uh, hundred bucks. If you wanted to go up to the deluxe, whatever that got you. Yeah. And then I think they offered a, a, a uh, camper edition as well, like a camper that you could add onto the back of the, maybe the pickup truck. See, the thing is, if they could have just had more,
2: uh, more access to parts, because again, this is what the third vehicle in our list. Like, it's shorted because of supply yeah. issues. and
1: the crazy thing is, and I find this unbelievable, they've already built 1,000 pickups and 300 wagons, and they're using these 1941 Plymouths. Yep. I guess when they ran out of Plymouths to find, because they, they scoured every junkyard all across the United States, and they, they ran out of vehicles to find and, and to build on, they were, they were so focused on that 1941 Plymouth design that they couldn't adapt. They couldn't go anywhere else with it. They said... Well, we're we're out of vehicles. We have no more supply. That's that's all, folks. I guess. And and you know, if you want to read a little more in depth about this, if there was a an article at the um, there's a Chrysler site called Allpar, and if you go to Allpar. And search for the Powell Sportwagon. You're going to find uh, a pretty good write up and some good photos of these things. You know, yeah. The original prototype design and, uh, you know, some of the, the, uh, I guess the workings of those tubes that they, uh, that they had that slid in and out of the back. <laughs> strange, strange design. But, uh, but that's really cool. I wish, again, I keep saying this, but I wish there were more of these out there, but then they wouldn't be on our list, would they?
2: Yeah. But if they kept going, they could have so much stuff. They could have custom designed, Fishing poles that come with the vehicle. People love things like that. The whole marketing angle. The whole marketing angle, you know. Mm. Um, and.
0: If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously, it's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice too, because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource, and paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash
3: Get emotional with me, Rathi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. this People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations
2: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to "Playing Dirty" sports scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I let's see. Speaking of great segues, haha! Uh, it's time, I think, for us to finally discuss number one. Uh, Noel, Noel is our super producer here. Uh, hey, Noel, could we have a like really dramatic
1: drum roll? Coming in at number one on the list is the 1963 to 1967 Gordon Keeble.
2: Yeah. And we've probably got some people right now who are saying, uh, Gordon Keebler, like the, the and, and cookies. No, it's Keeble. You mean like the elf? R. like the Elves? Yeah. Uh, and it is, we assure you, a car. It's not just any car. It's a very
1: interesting. And pretty good car. Yeah, no kidding. This one, it, it, uh, there's a lot to this one, a lot more than you would think, just having a, a quick cursory look at it, because um, this one is fitted with a 5.4 liter V8 from a Corvette. Um, and when you look at this thing, it looks like, uh, you know, a, a typical British sports car, I guess, of the era, which is not bad to begin with. I mean, it looks like a James Bond car, almost like a, yeah. a bit like an Aston Martin in some way, at least in the photo. that I'm It's looking very at. British. Very, very British. That's probably a good way to say it, Ben. And... Um, Boy, it went through several different engine variations. But the way the car came about was this guy named John Gordon. And John Gordon worked for a car company called Peerless. And the Peerless Car Company, um, I think they were having some financial troubles at the time. They were struggling. You know, they were having a little bit of difficulty. But Gordon kind of broke off from there. John Gordon yep. did. And he eventually teamed up with a guy named Jim Keeble. And together they built this car called the Gordon GT. Now, that's the original vehicle, not, not what we're talking about right now. But the Gordon GT... Was built on a, a peerless chassis because of course you know that's what he knew just like the guy with the um, the Canadian vehicle and he knew the no chassis right yeah so he builds this one on a peerless chassis with a Buick 3.5 liter V8 so it's a strong vehicle and then later they fitted the same vehicle with a 4.6 liter Chevy V8 so they went up a little bit in power and then after they um, well there's a story behind this but they they eventually went up to the 5.4 liter V8. Uh, which, you know, as we know, that's, uh, that's what they ended up with, I guess, for the, for the Gordon Keebler. But, right. uh, the car was shown at, um, at the Bertone stand. And I, I always struggle with this one again. Bertone, Bertoni, um, Bertone stand in 1960 at the Geneva Motor Show. Right. And it was, you know, the, the Bertone is like the kind of the, uh, the one-off builder, I guess, of, of Italian automobiles, right?
2: Right. And, uh, they had,
1: Built this in less than a month. Yeah. They built this. Twenty-seven days is all it took to build this vehicle. So after you know, it did pretty well at the show. You know, the Geneva Motor Show in nineteen sixty. It, it created quite a splash, I guess, with the uh, with the media and with the public. And after some road testing, and uh, the car was finally shipped to Detroit, where then kind of the Chevrolet management gave it a once over. Yeah, because I don't know what the deal was behind this, but you know, they knew that they were using. Their engines in the product. And I think the idea was that, you know, John Gordon and Jim Keebler, uh, wanted, or, or Keeble rather, yeah. wanted to, um, wanted to, um, somehow get some kind of deal going with Chevrolet in order to provide drivetrain for this thing.
2: Right. So that they wouldn't get lost without any supply chain.
1: Exactly. And so the Chevrolet management, you know, after they looked at the thing said, yeah, it's definitely a go. We're going to give you Chevy VH, you know, the uh, the Corvette V8s mm-hmm. in particular. Yeah. And gearboxes to go into production with this thing. And they built about 90 vehicles to start with. And, um, I think that they found out that, you know, it was just too expensive at the time. The price is just too steep to continue because people weren't buying them. I don't think that they were popular right. with the, uh, with the car buying public is um, the problem.
2: Yeah, unfortunately. And there's a weird marketing thing with this. Um, when you check out, some photos of this vehicle, which you really should because it is worth your time. You'll see that they have an emblem that is a little bit counterintuitive. You guys, they have a pet tortoise on their cars. Yeah. And the, well, the reason they have this, um, this turtle there, or excuse me, I know there's a difference. Uh, the reason they have this tortoise on there is because, uh, when they were taking the photo shoot, right, for their, their company photo, uh, somebody's pet tortoise Wandered into the shot. How so does that they, happen? It photobombed. Well, it, maybe it took a lot longer for them to get the camera set it must
1: up. Have taken a significant amount of time. Yeah. for a tortoise to wander into the shot.
2: Right, which is not known for speed. It so Doesn't they, get much slower than that. So they loved it. Apparently, it was a funny day. Yeah,
1: but this car. I mean, this car. That's that's an interesting story behind the logo. That's that's funny. But um, the uh, this thing has three hundred horsepower. It's a it's a yep. you know, not a huge vehicle. I mean, it's a it's a pretty small car. I mean, it, take a look at the photo. You know any photo? Look at it, look up Gordon Keeble, nineteen sixty-seven. You'll you'll see a shot of this thing. Um, it turns out that exactly one hundred of these were built because the final examples, I guess, were built from spares in yeah. at the end of production in nineteen sixty-seven. So while they right. built ninety at the factory that were built and sold, I think ten more were eventually put together, and I think ninety of them still are around.
2: And they tried to restart it again in nineteen sixty-eight because a guy named John Debrune, uh, an American, a Yankee. Uh, bought the rights to the car, but he didn't um, didn't really do anything. There were two more cars that were pretty much Giebler, I mean, excuse me, Keeble, Gordon Keebler, but they uh, they had a DeBruns badge on them. Uh,
1: I see. And you know what? The, the main thing that was holding this one back was price, because I yep. mentioned that the price it's was a little bit too steep, and I, I did the breakdown on this thing, and I, okay. I converted it to uh, current dollars, if you'd like to hear it, and this yeah. is kind of the wrap-up of the whole thing. Because it was
2: what uh, – 2,798 oh, pounds. Yeah,
1: I do, Can I tell you one more thing before yeah, I tell yeah, you the yeah, price? Yeah. This is, this is maybe another interesting little thing. Oh. The interior of this thing. What? Oh, wait. Okay. I, yeah. Maybe you have something else even. Uh-huh. But the interior of this thing is said to have what they call an old luxury jet feel. Uh, which to me, that sounds so awesome. Imagine like an old, like a 1960s luxury jet. Yeah. And that's what the interior of this vehicle feels like when you get inside of it. It has, um, it has things like toggle switches and quilted aircraft PVC and, you know, black gauges. It's, you know, like white on black gauges. It's supposedly like a really, really interesting looking interior and it probably just feels right when you get inside. It's just one of those cars that just feels right. You know? Weird. You know,
2: another thing I thought you were going to say something different, which is officially my weird thing. It has two gas tanks, my friend.
1: Two gas tanks. Oh, that's like, uh, like the old, Trucks or maybe uh, conversion vans or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that weird. This. That's kind of cool, a reserve tank. All right. Uh, what's to, the scratch? Back to price. Yeah, back to the scratch. All right, so what held this thing back, Ben? Yes, so sir. We're back to price again, is that, you know, the, the price was just too steep in 1960. Now, the price initially was 2,798 British pounds in 1960. Okay. okay. And I couldn't do the conversion between... You know what that was back then. You know what that equated oh, to I, to U.S. dollars. Okay, so I, right. I couldn't figure out the U.S. dollar amount then. That was nineteen sixty pound in nineteen sixty cash. But what I could do, Ben, is I could take the two thousand seven hundred ninety eight pounds in nineteen sixty and extrapolate it to two thousand thirteen dollars, and that's what I did. Okay, so two thousand seven hundred ninety eight pounds in nineteen sixty was equal is equal to forty six thousand five hundred seventeen pounds in 2013 oh no so the dollar amount the u.s dollar amount, oh man 77,055 dollars <sighs> in 2013 oh, so that's a pretty significant amount of money now i don't know what the 1960 direct conversion was but you're looking at you know if it would have come on the market right now yeah. this is a vehicle that would cost 77,055 dollars and you know in pounds 46,517 pounds If you wanted to do it that way. That's a lot of mozzarella. That that, that is Ben. That's a a lot of money. Yeah,
2: I, uh, I guess I see why a lot of people didn't buy it. so that is number one. And as you said, and I'll say it this time, there's a reason these cars get on these lists. Yeah.
1: And you, I mean, we've said this before, but I, I don't know if I'd put that at number one. I might, uh, might sway towards, uh, something really unusual like that opera coupe or something that we'd covered. Yeah.
2: That's what I was thinking for obscurity. What I'm thinking is first off in terms of just, uh, just raw numbers, you mm-hmm. know, I want something that was either meant for production and didn't make it yeah. or just had a smaller number. I mean, this is
1: number one and there were 100 produced and there are 90 of them out there somewhere. Right. But, but still, I've never seen a Gordon Keeble on the road.
2: Yeah, I you, I think we'll have to make it a mission to find one. I think our chances of running into one randomly are quite low. Pretty slim. Yeah. Um, I have a favorite to ask you. What's that? Uh, if, can I just read some laundry list names of companies that people might consider obscure. I would love that. Okay, great. I want to do this in lieu of listener mail as a bit of an experiment. So we're just going to read this list. Um, and Scott, you tell me if there's something that you think we should do a podcast on listeners do the same. Are you ready? Right. <clears throat> All right. Artiga, Ascari, Breckland, uh, da, 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 capero. I'm watching you as I'm reading these. See if you're into any of these. Caterham, Covini, Devon, Dunkervoot, which I did not make mm-hmm. up, Elfin, which we have—I think we have mentioned Elfin once or twice. FM Auto, Farbio, Fisker, Gumpert, and that's it.
1: I think about six of those. I was keeping track of my yeah. hands here. I, I think <laughs> I think six of those I would have an interest in doing a full episode on. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and you know what? The other ones—I'm uh, sure that they've got pretty unusual vehicles as well. I mean. Who knows? Maybe they could be in their own podcast together. You know, grouped together as one. Yeah. But uh, all of those are definitely unique brands. I mean, were you thinking of Covini? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Was that that was? No, I don't know. I don't know. Now that's one. That's one that could be dumped in with the others. I think. Yeah. But uh, there's some interesting ones there that I would like to cover in a full podcast for sure. Ah, okay. And I, I bet listeners have their own list as well. Ah, yes. Which brings
2: us to our most important point. Guys, if you've already checked out our excellent website, carstuffshow.com, you know that we have a great interest in all sorts of vehicles, especially if we haven't heard much about them before. So check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Let us know which obscure cars you think should have been on the list. Uh, Let us know your favorites. Let us know if you drive. A little known vehicle or have oh, a personal experience that one. would be interesting i'd yeah.
1: love i love it when somebody says i personally own one of these and here's you know a few photos of it and some of yeah. the uh, some of the unusual things about it
2: yeah and those almost always end up turning into some some fascinating personal stories too about how you got the car what happened with it your adventures in it so go ahead and tell us what you think Now you don't have to write just about obscure cars if you have an idea for something we should cover in the future we want to hear that too um, I'll, I'll even, I'll read limericks. I don't know if you will, Scott. Oh, I
1: don't know. It depends. Dirty
2: limericks? I did not know there were clean limericks. We're a
1: family show.
2: We're a family show. We won't read them on the air, but we'll probably read them.
1: We would still appreciate them.
2: <laughs> we'll appreciate them uh, for their artistic merit. So uh, that's it. Just drop us a line. Our email
1: address, as always, is Car stuff at com.
3: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at
0: HowStuffWorks.com.
2: This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.
0: Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fairs. Discover more